So good, good morning. It's been a long time since I've done this, so bear with me, okay? <laughs> um, I really felt like this morning, you know, Josh texted me last night, and he, you know, he said, would you mind sharing tomorrow? And I was kind of like, oh, wow. I haven't been in that vein for a long time where I um, am just sitting on a word or been preparing something. Because when you're pastoring, you're trying to, you're trying to take what God's given you and speak for people, but you're also trying to teach things and speak things into existence. And you know, you're pastoring situations and there's all this stuff going on. So you're constantly full of, of different things to communicate. Um, but when you, you leave that everyday life and you know, you're, you're back to quote unquote normal, which I don't even know what that's like, but you're not, you're not preparing a sermon, you're not burying people, you're not doing marriage counseling, you're, it's just you. It's really funny how you really find your life message in the silence, where you're not doing, it's just now you're just being. And I've discovered that I have a life message and it's on the table of the Lord, it's on communion. And God has really put this into me. And the reason he put it into me, I'll go back and tell you a little bit of a story. My, um, my mom, when she was growing up, was a, a Catholic. And growing up in the strict community that she was in, um, when she met my dad, my dad was a divorced Episcopalian. Now, in some of those circles, it, that's like taboo, you know. That's like committing the, the unpardonable sin or something, right? Like, a Catholic's going to marry an Episcopal. Oh, no, the world's going to end, you know. Um, but they got married, and they didn't get married in the church. They got married in my grandfather's uh, backyard. And so from the time my mother was married until the time, well, the day in, in which she was dying, she wasn't allowed to take communion. So I grew up going to church with my mom, and my mom would sit back, and then she'd be like, well, go, you know, go, go take communion. And I'm like, well, why isn't she taking communion? Well, she can't take it. She tells me because she's married to my dad. And it was just all confusing, right? And so my mom uh, ended up getting cancer, uh, lung cancer. It was, it was a really... Uh, trial for our family in that season um, and during that time you know I was preaching in Albany New York at an Episcopal church weird for me to even be in there but I was and um, my dad called and it was right about the time that we were taking communion there and my dad called my phone and I knew my mom was sick really bad so I went out into the uh, entryway and I picked up the phone and I said what's going on he said well She's really bad, she's in the hospice house, and I said, well, do I need to leave now? He goes, no, I don't think so. You know, just spend the night, don't worry. You know, it'll be fine, you got time to come see her. So the next morning I wake up, my phone's got like five missed calls my dad. I'm like, great. So I pick up the phone and he's like, if you wanna see your mom, you need to get here right now. So Albany to New York to Merrimack, New Hampshire was probably about a four hour drive. I made it in two and a half hours. I mean, I was dangerously driving like 100 miles an hour down the back road to get there. So I'm in there and, um, you know, realizing that here's my mother, who I love so much, who's never been able, since she married my father, which is a blessing, to take communion. Just the simple act of taking communion. So I took a water bottle and I took my granola bar and I read out of the scriptures and she wasn't able to communicate at that time. And I put the water bottle to her lips and let it dribble down. And I put the, the granola bar to her mouth and I gave my mother communion. And ever since then, my heart has burned for people to understand 
the loving nature of our God. And I love communion because it's the place where, it's the great equalizer, right? We all come to the table, we're all receiving, none of us are really giving, we're all equal, we're all one, we're all sons and daughters, the titles go away, what we do for work doesn't matter. We're literally sitting in his presence and, and, and receiving of something, and I'm speaking spiritually too, not just about an act of bread and wine, but we're receiving a communion from the Lord, and there's something powerful that is in this message is that the greatest scandal of Jesus's ministry was not in the miracles. It wasn't in uh, riding in on a donkey. It was who he ate dinner with that made people so mad. If you could put that scripture up, brother. Listen to this, this is so, so powerful. It says in Mark 2, and he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of, I'm, I mispronounce stuff all the time, so if you guys are like biblical word people, just ignore it. Um, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said, follow me, and he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house that many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them and they were following him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw this, that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to Jesus' disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? What's so powerful about this is like right now, like any of us at any minute, we could just like go down to Ingalls or Food Lion up north. We have Hannaford's and Market Basket and we could just get a loaf of bread. We could buy a pre-cooked chicken and we could just have dinner with somebody. Dinner doesn't mean in our culture what it meant in Jesus's culture. For Jesus to have a dinner party, there was purpose, there was planning, there was suffering. People had to give up things that maybe they didn't want to, but they knew that they wanted to have a meal, so things might have been tight, and they took their last bit of flour to bake the bread to have people over, and not only people over, but when Jesus came, so did the whole rowdy crowd of combat zone, of the, you know, of a street that has illicit places in it, all those kind of folks came too. It's like, wait a minute, Jesus. But see, Jesus' table was so much bigger than our table. He wasn't afraid to get spiritual cooties from hanging out with somebody. Because see, we love the message of the love of God, but the challenge of the love of God, see, it's easier to preach condemnation. You know why? You can, you can not hang around people you don't like by just saying, well, they're not doing this right, so I don't want to be around them. But when the love of God is taught to us, now all of a sudden we have to love those that we don't really want to love. Or we have to love those that actually have, you know, maybe they're not right in the situation. Maybe in the argument, they were the one that perpetuated it and they were wrong. But the love of God says, love them anyway, eat with them anyway. You know what's so amazing about Jesus? He didn't require people to change to be in his presence. That's what made him so attractable. That's what I'm so attracted about this church and my relationship with people is that you guys love well. You don't, you don't make people change to be here. You know, the old thing, come as you are, but I wonder sometimes if the church really believes that. 
You know, years ago, let's face it, for those of us who have been around a little bit in the kingdom and maybe didn't understand grace at one time, communion Sunday was a Sunday you skipped. Because Jesus might assassinate you. I mean, think about it. The very table that talks about the gospel, which is his blood was for you, there's forgiveness. His body was broken for you, there's healing. Um, there, he, he said, do this in remembrance of me, there's hope, right? But the very table for so long has been in the hands of a bad theology that seeks to literally terrorize people into getting born again again when they're already saved and the table is meant to be a representation of his love. I mean, I remember I'd, my pastor, and he was, you know, I honor him, and I, and, I, and, I, and I love him to this day, but he was very legalistic. Like, he would, with me, he'd open up the Bible, the Ananira and Sapphira, to see if I was lying. But Communion Sunday was awful. It was scary. People didn't come. They didn't bring, the kids didn't forget it. The kids weren't taking it. They're smarter than the adults. Kids aren't going to try to fake they're really holy. They'll just sit back and not take it. But I remember being in absolute fear and distress when I came up to take communion and just thinking, man, I hope that, like, if, if I had a good Sunday, that's good, I can come take it. But if I have a bad Sunday, everybody's in the line and it's like quiet and scary. But how can that be? Like, why would Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners and then kill his sons and daughters on a Sunday morning? Maybe we haven't read it correctly. Maybe we haven't looked at it in a, in a different way. See, I think when Jesus taught us to, to take communion or have meals or, or fellowship, and he says, do this in remembrance of me, I don't think it was just the cross. I think he's saying, remember every table I sat at. Remember the people that were there. Remember, remember those that came. Be like me. Where men draw small circles, draw a bigger circle. Where they exclude people, include people. Where there's, where, where there's division, bring healing. Now I want to look at the scary first. All right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 11. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. And, and I, want, I want to talk about this because it's in the beginning of this passage that he really prescribes describes what's going on, and it isn't what we think. He says, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. So the issue is actually the gathering. So the issue is not really what we think it is. It's not us having a bad week. It's, it's really, he's talking about how they were living with one another, the one another, prefer one another, love one another. What, what I love about Paul is if you understand the evolution of his teaching in scripture, he starts very apocalyptically. He's very end-time focused, it seems like. He's coming at it from a perspective, the world's going to end. But then slowly as Paul changes and he gets more revelation, at the end of his life, his main focus is in a paternal manner on the body and that they would be one and not divide. That they would love one another and not judge one another. You know? The Bible says, judge nothing before it's time. And what that really means is there's going to be a time when we actually get to see what really is, meaning there are things right now we can't fully understand, but we will when we're there, whatever that looks like. And what Paul talks about in Romans, when he's saying, you all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, if you understand the Greek there, he's not saying one day you're all gonna be judged again, 
what he's saying is one day you're gonna sit in the full understanding of his judgment, meaning you're gonna see as he sees, so don't judge your brother because what you may think he's not doing right, God actually sees him as the finished product. Randall says this, he says, God doesn't um, start things to finish them, he finishes them to start them. And so God sees us completed. There's a story of St. Francis, and I love reading all the mystics uh, of history, and yeah, they had bad theology, but let me tell you something, some of their faith was crazy. And St. Francis once stood before an almond tree that was barren, and God said, what do you see? And when he looked at it, he said, I see a barren almond tree, and God said, look again, and I'll show you what I see. And when he looked again, he had a vision of it in full bloom, and God said, that's how I see people. See, he sees the gold in us, even when we're in a mess. And see, this table of the Lord thing, this communing thing, this fellowship with one another, because see, I find the fellowship out there just as powerful as anything that happens in here. I find sitting with someone at a table, my brother or my sister, or someone who doesn't really fully understand something, or even people I'm just loving or family, I find that just as important as anything we're doing in the building. The building is just us gathering together to share the common life, but then this common life gets exported all over the place. And so he's saying, you guys are coming together, you know, for the worse, not the better. Go ahead, next verse. Are you guys okay? I know I'm not really a preacher anymore, so I don't, I don't know how to get really excited like that. So he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that the divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be, this is really, really weird scripture, right? For there must be factions among you, so that those who are approved it might be evident among you. What does that mean? It means that in the middle of faction, one that is approved is actually somebody that's trying to bring healing to the division. So what he's saying is he's like, if there's factions, look for the approved ones. Hang out with those people who are positive. Hang out with those people who are trying to build you up and, and, and try to, the approved ones will actually take you and your brother and they'll say, hey, come together guys. This isn't worth it. We're brothers and sisters. We're kind of the same cloth. I remember like the last two years of pastoring a church, it was like all I was doing. Like I was praying, God, give me the ministry of reconciliation. And you know, he's like, okay. And then all of a sudden, all these relationships are blowing up in the church and this person's not coming on the worship team. And you know, it was just, it just was crazy. And all I was doing, remember Jim, was like literally going to the church every day and making people talk. Making them get face to face. And I would, I would have communion, would take communion right there. Communion was a healing thing because what it was doing was saying, this is what we gather around. We don't gather around our opinions or the way we think we should do church or, and to be really honest, even our doctrine, doctrine is secondary to culture because, because the evidence of your doctrine is found in your culture. And there's lots of great websites and churches and ministries that have their doctrine up there, but then you go to the church and it's nothing like what they believe. Why? Because the relationships haven't been mended. There hasn't been a sifting to see who's approved. Are you guys all right? Yeah. All right. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. So what he's actually saying is, you're not getting together to celebrate me, celebrate Jesus. You're gathering around all of these factions. And he's saying, that's not a good thing. And next verse, for if you're eating and for if you're eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk, because crazy you think this, but they were getting together in their corporate meal, 
And some of them were getting wasted and praying in tongues at the same time over the meal. Isn't that, I mean, I just find that not hilarious, but like shocking. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink? Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord, which I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, really powerful that that's in there. Because see, he's talking to them about betrayal. He's saying, you've been betrayed. You're betraying one another. But I'm delivering something that I got from Jesus. On the night Jesus was betrayed, do you realize that in the Last Supper, he gave communion to Judas? And, and bringing Judas up is, is really powerful. I went through this time, and this was so wrong of me. Um, my best friend in our church, and was a co-leader, the enemy used somebody to divide us for over two years while we were working together. We, we both, and, and what this individual did, we wrestled not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, right? So it wasn't a person. They manipulated their text messages to make it look like they received a text from my brother and came over the house and showed it to me and I saw it and I didn't go to him right away with it, which I totally should have, but I got suspicious. And I, so one night the Lord's speaking to me and he says, you know, whether you've been betrayed or whether you've not been betrayed, do you know that you can find healing in my face, in my beard? And the Bible talks about there's rest and the pulling out of his beard, that in his face there is rest. And so literally I saw Jesus, his beard being betrayed because of Judas, and I saw God's heart for Judas regardless of what was happening to him. And it began to start to change my life. Anyway, my brother and I reconciled, but I think of all those years that were just wasted in our relationship. Hello. Wouldn't it be cool if it like came down here and landed? What is he, in the light? Uh, get out of there. All right, there he goes. Good job, buddy. So, he, next verse. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup also after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever, drinks, or whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, this is where people get freaked out. But do you notice he didn't say, when you come unworthy? Because see, that's what's been taught. That you come here unworthy to take the table, like, like you have an issue going on in your life. You're, maybe you got a divorce, or maybe you went through something, or maybe things didn't work out the right way. People hide from communion because they think they're gonna be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But that doesn't make sense theologically because what is the body and the blood of the Lord for? Forgiveness of sin, not condemnation. He's saying you're coming unworthy, meaning the manner in which you gather is unworthy. The way in which you are doing things is unworthy. And he's talking about them gathering and, you know, 
the rich are eating first, the poor are coming and they're not getting fed. There's preferences and caste systems in their culture. There's racism issues going on. Do you see how this message could heal the world? I mean, we're living in the most divided time probably in American history. And yet what needs to happen is two parties need to come together at a table and get the wisdom of God. I mean, to think how powerful it is to eat together. Here's an interesting story. How many of you know, well, you probably do, or maybe the younger people don't, uh, who Nelson Mandela is? Nelson Mandela um, obviously was, uh, some say he was a terrorist that changed. Some say he was just trying to uh, uh, alleviate his country's suffering in um, racism and apartheid. What I say is that there's an earlier part of every party's life that they do things where they shouldn't do, but people change. So he goes to prison, and in prison, he, he, his heart is completely changed. He literally says that he fears leaving prison because he's so at peace here, and there's, he doesn't want to go back out in the divisions of the world. Well, when he got out and he began to work on reconciliation, bringing both parties together for healing, what he did was, and I think God probably gave him wisdom, is that he actually brought together uh, two widows who are both from different sides of the faction who had lost their husbands. And he sat them down at a table and served them a meal and treated them like queens. And he said, what can, we, what can you teach us about healing the nation? And he literally learned from them what they're, and so what happened was both sides saw the heartbreak in each heart and they actually started to have compassion for one another even though both of them had lost their husbands to the other side. See, the table of the Lord is a place of healing. The table of the Lord is a place where we, we come together and we gather in a way which is a witness to the world that there's hope that anybody can come who needs Jesus. That anybody can come and get healing. You think about Jesus, he hung around prostitutes. One of them broke into his dinner party and threw her perfume, which was considered in that day an aphrodisiac, and threw it on his feet and took her hair down and washed his feet. And I bet Jesus was just smiling, big smile on his face. And they're having a hard time with this, but he's saying, this is what happens when the table, the presence of the table, the, we are the table, do you understand that? That we're literally a walking, breathing communion table. And that when we really get that love, and we really understand how deep his love is for us, and oh, what manner of love is this that we should be called the sons of God. There will be buses pulling up here with people that we really don't understand and maybe don't really like. But he's calling us to expand our hearts beyond what we think and know about his love. And so, I'm sorry, getting caught up in this, but next verse, I'm gonna get through this. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat, of the, of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, for he, he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many of you are weak, many of you sleep, and many are sick. What he's saying here is not God's making you sick because you came in an unworthy manner. He's saying you're coming in an unworthy manner, just like Robin said, where we're taking things all upon ourselves and we're not receiving of the Lord, so they're not coming for healing. They're just making it a fickle thing like there's nothing involved in it. You know, you could have the most powerful revival in the world and one heart's transformed and the other one's just like, what was that, that's no big deal. It's the condition of the heart, right? So what he's saying is when you come to the, when you come to the table, when you gather with one another, expect healing. 
don't just eat it and drink it like it's no big deal. He's saying expect that it's there because if you eat and drink like it's no big deal, you'll get no big deal. So he's saying not really that it's a judgment from the Lord. He's saying it's almost a self-judgment of unbelief. Or maybe you have unforgiveness in your heart. Jesus says, don't even give if you have that. Go to your brother. I think Josh preached that, I think, last week. They had divisions, factions, they were excluding people, they weren't preferring themselves. And that the reason that, that they weren't preferring other people, the reason that people were sleeping and sick is that they weren't ministering the healing of the Lord to the people who needed it. And Paul's, Paul's really caught up in this because he's like, guys, you're missing out. It's here, right here, all along, right in front of you. God was in this place and I wasn't even aware of it. It's right here. See, I love this message because when I went through two deaths of parents, my dad and my mom died in three years. My best man, who was the best man at my wedding, died in a motorcycle accident. I was having a total burnout and nervous breakdown and I felt so unworthy. I still deal with shame and everything over this whole thing. Like, it's real to me. But I, when I go to the table of the Lord, when I sit there with a cracker, I've done it with pickles, and, <laughs> but a cracker, because I didn't have anything else, a cracker and grape juice, and I close my eyes and I begin to think of all the things that Jesus did for me in the sense of that I have healing available to me. And I just let my meditation of my heart be pleasing to him in the sense that what that means is that the meditation of your heart agrees with his pleasure. And I just take that as a physical place of a point of contact. You know that um, John Wesley took communion every day. John G. Lake took communion every day. Smith Wigglesworth took communion every day. On and on and on again. You can look at Catherine Kuhlman, Benny Hinn, whether you like him or not. Power, all these power ministries did it every day. Why? Because it was a reminder to them. Do this in remembrance of me. And it's proclaiming the Lord's death. What does that mean? It means that it's proclaiming that his death was our death. We don't have to be sick anymore. We don't have to be, have mental illness anymore. We don't have to have any of those things because we are proclaiming the death. And when we take communion, we're proclaiming to the whole world that if one died, therefore all have died. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 14. We're declaring to the world that he died for you. You no longer have to go through that. You no longer have to beat yourself up or climb 1,000 steps to the monastery or whatever it is you're doing, that Jesus is here right now in your present moment with healing in his wings. <clears throat> for this reason, many are weak and sick and number sleep. Next verse. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. It, this has nothing to do with the judgment of the Lord. If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. See, one of the problems the church has is we, anytime we talk about judgment, we constantly think about Jesus. Not all judgment is bad. Philemon 1 and 6 says this. It says that the, um, your faith works effectively by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He's declaring here, guys, judge yourself as Jesus judges you, that you're the very righteousness of God in Christ, that you're the sons and daughters of the living God, a chip off his old block, born of the same cornerstone, that he is the exact radiance of his Father, and therefore, when I am in him, so am I. That's not heresy. That's identity. Next verse. I'm almost done with this portion of scripture. 
But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brother, see, he's still talking about our, 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 see, I think Jesus sees this more important than this. Now, now hear me out when I say that. We know this is right right now. I mean, we know so much, like Josh talked about, so much revelation about who we are. We know this is right, but we're a many-membered, one-man Christ. Barbara's part of me, and I'm part of her, so if I'm not doing well, she's not doing well. Right? God's looking for a manifestation of a one, one many-membered son to manifest in the earth. So our job is this powerful ministry of reconciliation where anytime we see something that is like somebody's not walking in the fullness of their identity or brother and sisters are having a hard time, no, 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 we're fixing that. We're going we're gonna to deal with that right away. We're going we're gonna to do what they do in the, this tribe in Africa I read about. This, uh, if a young man or someone in the tribe commits an offense or does something bad, they bring the person in the center of the tribe for three days, and all the tribe, tribal elders and all the people around it never speak one negative thing to him, but constantly tell him about his gifts and how much they appreciate him. That's restoration. Next verse. If anyone is hungry, like some of us are getting right now, let him eat at home so you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I'll arrange when I come. Next verse. Did I give you more than that? Maybe that's all I give you. I think so. Yeah, sorry. See, he's, he's telling us how to live together. See, I, I, don't, I don't just want to go to church anymore. I want fellowship, man. I want, like, community. I want authenticity. I want, you know, and, and I lived so inauthentic for so many years because, you know, how can the pastor get up and talk about all his problems? So I had to stuff him. I'm not doing that anymore. I can tell you that right now. And I had to stuff everything. And what it did was it caused me to mask my true self from the very people I love. There's no judgment if you're having a hard time. Look, there's no judgment if you're having a marital problem. That just means you need help. I mean, Jen and I, we're, we're working through tons of stuff. I snapped at her last night, and I'm so sorry, because the chicken, I thought, wasn't done all the way. And I went bickered, and I'm sorry, I love her, I shouldn't do that. Right? This is where the rubber meets the road, but this is also where revival happens. Go to, put up the next verse, Isaiah. And notice the sequence of it when it comes up. It's really cool. <laughs> I, nope. All right, guys, take out your pistols. There we go. Thank you very much, brother. Uh, now concern, no, 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 it wasn't that one. Acts 2, 42 through 47. Uh, 42 through 47. I forgot how uncomfortable this is. Huh? No, I know, but like you all of a sudden you're like have all these people just staring at you. <laughs> Fantastic. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Literally, that's what God said do. Just do that. Really simple, right? Hang out with a bunch of people that have revelation, pray, 
fellowship one another, and take communion. Then, he, then it says, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Next verse. For all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Now, I want to say this. There's a lot of people that have went to bringing back com communities or communes. But how many of you know that we can have that together? We can have all things in common. You know, Josh isn't feeling well. That bothers all of us. We want God to completely sever that attack of the enemy that's been on his life, right? When someone's needing something, we have it in common. We're, we're, we're looking and we're saying, if, they're in an, if they have a need, then I have a need because they are one with me and I'm one with them. Just as we are bone of Jesus' bone and flesh of his flesh, we are bone and bone of our flesh together, that we literally are one in Christ. And he says, they began selling their property and possessions, and we're sharing them all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Now listen to this. This is, the, this is so powerful. Praising God and having favor with all people. Why did they have favor with people? I remember a pastor told me that, you know, that verse that says, you know, beware of when men speak well of you. And he totally misinterpreted that because Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the, in the presence of the Pharisees saying, beware of when these guys speak well of you. And so for years I thought, man, people just have to hate you to really be living in Christianity. Some of this sounds familiar to some of us. Or, you know, if somebody, if we have favor in our community, then we must be compromising in some way. No, I think it's this. I think they loved in such a manner that it couldn't be resisted. That they had, had a love birthed in their heart that was so large that no matter who they were with, they were completely present with them and they didn't need that person to stop doing whatever it was they were doing that, that we're, we're not doing, but they could just be there and they could just love fully. And then it says this, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. What he's literally giving us is a prescription for revival. See, the reason we come to the table of the Lord, we don't come to, to, to get judged and, you know, all that stuff I was talking about, we come to learn how to live like Jesus lived. And I, this is what I believe because I read it in a, a thing about the early church. In the early church, when they would gather together for the, for the table of the Lord, they would specifically read the gospels or recite them because a lot of it was oral at that time. And what they would do is talk about all the tables that Jesus sat, ate with, that he ate with Zacchaeus, that he ate with Levi, that he ate with sinners and prostitutes, that he ate with this person, and he ate with that person. And the diversity of all the people that Jesus ate with meant that we can eat with any person in this world, no matter what they're going through, no matter how bad the, the church or the world or anybody thinks of them, and we can love them in such a way that the Lord would add to our number daily those who would be saved in our homes, in our communities, in our gatherings, in our, you know, it's communion when you gather together to do art. It's communion when you get gather together to do music. It's communion. What we are is a living, breathing body and blood of the Lord. To some, it's a sweet-smelling Savior. To others, it's a stench. But the reason it's a stench is they don't understand really how large God's love is. Are you okay? And what the Lord told me is he, it was like last night when I went to sleep and I wasn't completely sure 
what I was necessarily gonna talk about, even though this is a life message to me. I had a dream, and in the dream, you have to know my story, but I read a, a book by this man named Henry Now, and it was called, Can You Drink the Cup? Fascinating story, he was a Roman Catholic priest, and you know, in his ordination, his grandmother put ornate jewels in his chalice. The problem with the chalice was, only the priest could drink from it. That wasn't Jesus' style, right? By the way, Jesus is not afraid of sharing a cup. He's not afraid of getting a germ. He'll share it with anybody that wants to. He'll be in the presence of anybody that wants to because he's already in their presence already. David said, where can we go from the presence of the Lord? If I make my bed in Hades, you're there. Or in Sheol, you're there. We can't escape his divine love. It's irresistible. And so this man had uh, this cup and everything, and so he becomes this really um, prolific professor at Yale, and he's teaching theology, and he's having a complete mental nervous breakdown. So he calls his friend in Canada, and his friend says, well, why don't you come up here to the large community, which was uh, basically a place for invalids, people that had so many problems they couldn't take care of themselves, they couldn't shower alone, they couldn't do anything. And he thinks to himself, man, I'll go up there, that'll be great, I'll bring some healing up there. And the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, no, I'm bringing you there to be with them to heal you. You ever thought about some of the people in our life that are different or irritate us, are really instruments of his healing? And so, you know, in his Catholic way, he, he can't use that chalice, so he goes and gets a glass uh, cup blown, really ornate in Vermont and all this, like, really beautiful blown glass. And for the rest of his life, all he does is love those people and serve them communion. And God blows up his ministry and gives him a worldwide ministry, and he travels with the people in their wheelchairs and everything. He can't even speak because they're his community. Anyway, he's passed on. But when I read that book, I thought, yes, I'm going to get me a glass communion cup too. And I did, remember the big, I had this gigantic cup in, in our church, it was like this big, and we'd pour all the juice in it, and everybody dipped their hands in it. It was, it was one big mess up front. I mean, it was, and this, that was my style, I'm not saying you should do it here. And, and I mean, people would drink from it. It was just, and then at the end of the book, you know, the Lord was talking about the fragments and the, the you know, the things in life that, others have that we, we don't want to drink. Because Jesus told his disciples, you will drink this cup. Remember he told them that? But what he's talking about is the cup of life that he drank, meaning that he would drink into himself anything that people didn't like, and he would transform the pain into pleasure. He would transform the wound into healing. But he was willing in himself to absorb our sin and our junk and all of our stuff and in a, and in a divine, powerful transformation, change our minds and give us righteousness and peace and the Holy Ghost, and I'm sitting there in front of the church, and the Lord says, can you drink that cup? Everybody's gone now, the line's gone, and there is a mess of gnarly bread in there. I, I just know people's hands are in there, and I remember, I remember the Lord saying, drink, and I drank it. But what it was, was it was, wasn't about, I knew I wasn't gonna get German because God's our healer, right? But like, I might someday make a great missionary, actually, because I don't get freaked out by that stuff anymore. I was a germaphobe, and so, but I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, yeah, these are the people that I'm with and they have a mess. I have a mess, my mess is in there too. But let's drink it together and bring healing instead of re rejecting it. And I'm not telling you guys to go out and spit in cups and drink it and all that weird stuff. But so last night in this dream, I dreamt that I was sitting where, where we normally do and there was a different thing here and I had a big thing of bread in my hand 
and I had a cup that God made for us. And I got up here and I was like, you know, I'm thinking, oh, man, I, don't, I forgot grape juice. I'm like starting to freak out about it. I would get so freaked out. Didn't matter how many times. We, we did communion every Sunday. I forgot grape juice every single Sunday. Didn't matter. It was just a, a thorn in my side. And so I come up here and Jen runs up in the dream and she takes this thing and she just pours in juice or wine or whatever it was into this cup. And I woke up and I thought about it and I just came to me right now that the wife in our dreams is often the Holy Spirit. And what God's gonna do in this church is he's gonna make us a loaf so big the world cannot deny it. And he's gonna never let the bread and the fishes and the wine run dry. That this is gonna be a place where Jesus takes the best wine and pours it out. And how does it go? The best wine was normally saved for last, but Jesus gave it first. And what I felt like the Lord was saying is that we don't have to wait 50 years for things to manifest that God's pouring out his wine, his love to us, so that day by day he can add to this temple and that temple as many as the Lord would like to be saved. Have, I'm, I'm closing with this because, you know, so many of us are in this place where we're, we're working towards spirituality, but really, true spirituality recognizes what is, not what is to come. And you ever notice in that scripture we always quote 30, 60, 100-fold? You know it actually starts with 100-fold? does. He's got a hundredfold heart for us. So just stand for a minute if you don't mind. I'm going I'm to close with this. We're just going to pray. Just close your eyes for a second. Just put your hand like right in your heart. You feel like you got something to sing real quick? You do? What do I do? Do you have a microphone? I just believe that God is going to take a few minutes just to touch your heart. I feel like there's maybe one or more people who you've <clears throat> had a rough relational situation that's caused you years and years of being alone. And I feel like God wants to bring you friends. I know that sounds like such a simple thing, but I believe he's releasing friendship in this house. I know for me, when we moved, you know, having... Josh is such a good friend, and so many of you have good friends have ministered to me in my worst moments, I mean, worst moments. And knowing that I have a friend, it gives you hope that you can continue. You know, it's one thing to have, a, have your pastor, it's another thing to have a friend. And so, Father, I just pray that you would release friendship into this house. Lord, where people have maybe cut off their heart a little bit from one another, Lord, or just in life, the way life has hit them. Other things in other bodies, Lord, they might have been part of that have wounded them, Lord. We speak life and 
healing, Lord, in Jesus' name. God, I declare that our hearts are gonna be so full of your love. Lord, at the end of the day, like Bob Jones said to the Lord when he died and went to heaven, the Lord asked him where he said he's sending him back and he asked the Lord why and he said, so you can learn to love. But Lord, that's our assignment. Lord, we, we say yes to you today, to that, to that calling to love and to love unconditionally. And Lord, we, th- we thank you that we'll never burn out in that because you will always fill our cup. Lord, we pray for provision this morning for your people. And Lord, any, any need of healing at all in Jesus' name, we just declare that, God. Thank you.